Hello, I am your host, Samuel Hansen, and you are listening to Strongly Connected Components, episode 56, brought to you by acmescience.com. On this episode, I'm joined by Jordan Ellenberg, professor at the University of Wisconsin and author of the book, How Not to Be Wrong. We talk about why the son of two statisticians decided to become a mathematician, how a year writing fiction really just taught him that he needed to be doing mathematics. We delve into where he gets the ideas for the stories that he writes about, and he gives me a little bit of dating advice that he first got from Slime Molds. Here we go. Hello and welcome to Strongly Connected Components. I am joined today by professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and author of the wonderful book, How Not to Be Wrong, Jordan Ellenberg. Jordan, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm very happy to have you here. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start where you started, and that is, uh, I, I seem to see here that, that you were born the child of, of two statisticians. How sad were they when you decided to go into mathematics instead? I I tried. I tried to learn some statistics, actually, when I was younger, and it's a beautiful subject, but at the time, I think I found the, the shakiness of the philosophical underpinnings were, like, too scary for me. I felt a little nauseated all the time. Um, math is much more comfortable, right? I mean, you sort of know where you stand. You know what's proved and what's not. There's, it doesn't have quite the same ethical and moral dimension that statistics has, so I was never able to quite get comfortable the way my parents were. When you were a child, it seems that you were uh, were rather precocious, study, studying uh, rather advanced mathematics from a very early period, taking part in high school competitions in the fourth grade, I believe, and going to the International Mathematical Olympiad three times, two golds, one silver. You were Putnam as well. Uh, so was there any sort of, of weight on you from, from having been so good at mathematics from such a young age as you started to, you know, go on and, and go to college and so forth? No, I mean, you know, the effects of growing up in that environment are honestly like pretty purely positive in that you have some kind of like reservoir of belief that you're equal to like whatever problem you may try to face. That's enough to carry you a long way on a principle alone, you know. I mean, I, you know, I should say, I feel like whenever this subject comes up, I feel like it's important to say that I think for people out in the world, I think it's the stereotype of a mathematician that a mathematician is the kid who was very advanced, very above grade level, doing older kids' math as a younger kid. That was me. That's true. And there are other people who have that story as well. But people have a lot of different stories in math. That's something I've learned a lot as I got older. So there's lots of really great mathematicians who were not at all accelerated, who discovered they really loved math much later in life. I happened to discover it before I can even have memory, but that's not true of everybody, that's for sure. There, there is, there is that, that thought in the public of mathematicians being the people who, who do find math so early, as you said. Did you end up keeping in touch with any of the other people that, you, uh, that were in your cohort at that point, and, and what other paths did some of them end up taking? Oh, that's a good question. I guess when I think back, certainly there are people who became mathematicians, although I'm trying to think of kids who were the same... Ages. I mean, there's other people who you probably know now as mathematicians, like Terry Tao, 
who I met when we were both when we were both young, or Letty Ang. Uh, Terry's a professor at UCLA. Letty Ang is a professor at, at Duke. So there's definitely people who, um, you know, who sort of stayed in that academic math track. But what I was more saying is not so much that people who are extremely interested in math from a young age engage in all sorts of different life paths. Although that's certainly true. I was more saying the people who end up where I am, end up as professional mathematicians, sort of have all kinds of different life stories prior to that. Some kind of starting very young, some not. I mean, I'll say one more thing about this, actually. I think the kind of math that you can do as a young kid, especially the contest, I've sort of gone back and forth on math contests over my life. Of course, I was very into them when I was doing them. Then for a while, I was very negative about them. Not only kind of positive about them again, but I also recognize that it's a certain kind of mathematical activity that doing a math contest puts front and center, right? It puts cleverness. It puts speed. It puts being able to solve puzzle-type problems that people already know the answers to. So I think there's a certain temperament of mathematician who does well in those contests, but there's a certain other temperament of mathematician who are not really well-suited to, con- to contests and whose mathematical aptitude is not going to be well-picked up by those. So sometimes in math, people talk about problem solvers versus theory builders. I mean, in truth, we all have to be a bit of both, right? But it's the problem solvers who really excel in math contests. The theory builders, maybe not so much. There's no such thing as a theory building contest. There's uh, something I want to talk to you that was uh, similar to this this basic idea that I've seen you talk about before, and that's uh, the idea that uh, idea in culture that there are people who are math people and the people who are not math people, uh, and and so. I was wondering if we could talk a little bit uh, about that and specifically how, how we might be able to get around the idea that math is for, for a specific group of people. Yeah, I mean, it's a challenge because I believe fervently that we are all math people in the sense that doing mathematics is something that every human civilization in history has done. It's, it's inextricable from the very nature of being human. We all do it. We're all reasoning mathematically and thinking quantitatively all the time. It's not to say that some people are not more interested in it than others. Of course they are. But there's not some kind of a high wall, and I think a lot of people perceive there to be a high wall. In fact, it's, I'll tell you what I consider a great, great victory. That there was a, There's a school opening up, a math-oriented school in San Francisco called the Proof School. It's going to be great. It's going to be like the Juilliard of math. But originally when it first went up, they put up their website, and they said, like, a school just for math kids. And I wrote them, and I complained. I said, there's no such thing as a math kid. You shouldn't say that on their website. And now it says, a school for kids who love math. I felt very proud. A big victory. Because <laughs> we don't have to love math. You know, that's as much, that, I don't think everybody in the world needs to be in love with math the way that I am. Just like we don't all want to love the same person, right? Or the same baseball team. But obviously, um, I think math is all around us and it's, wound up with every single other kind of thing that we do. Uh, this, this was something I, I, was, I was quite surprised in, actually, when I, I was looking into your history doing research for the interview. You have, I mean, of course, you, ha- you have a PhD in mathematics, but you also have a master's from John Hopkins in fiction writing, which you uh, did before you did your graduate work in mathematics. What, what drew you into that? Well, I mean, I've always written a lot in high school and then in college. I did tons of creative writing workshops. And, you know, I figured, when else am I going to try this? I wanted to go and just write for a year and see what happened. And what I learned is that I missed doing math every single day. And that was actually great information for me. I mean, I think math 
there's such a track to it that I think a lot of people who study math are excited about it and go to college and major in math and then start a PhD program without ever taking that moment to look up and ask themselves, is this really what I want to do? And that can be a tough thing to do when you're already like 24 or 25 and have sunk a lot of years into it. So for me, it was very useful to have had that year doing something completely different and to see like, oh no, like every day that I'm not doing math, I'm like, I'd rather be doing math than doing what I'm doing right now. That was very useful for me professionally. Is the writing idea, the, the thing that drew you to uh, spend, spend that year writing, the same thing that draws you to write about mathematics? So kind of combining those two things with, say, your book, How Not to Be Wrong, or your, all the columns you've written at Slate and all the things you've written for a lot of other outlets. I mean, is that kind of coming from the same point? Did you just decide one day, you know what, I'm just going to combine these two things? I, yeah, I mean, I, I wish I could say it was an, as intentional and as planned as all that. I mean, what really happened is that Slate wrote me sometime in like 2000, and they were like, oh, we want to have a math column. Do you want to try writing it? I think I sort of knew some guys who worked for Slate from college, and so my name came up as somebody who might be able to do it. I had done some amount of magazine writing when I was in grad school, so I had some clips, so I gave it a try, and then I ended up sort of falling into that as a kind of regular first hobby and then almost kind of a side profession. I, You know, to be quite frank, there are a lot of people who can write novels. There are not as many who can write meaningfully about what's going on in mathematics. So that's been, I feel like I can sort of do more good that way in, in some sense. I Also, sometimes it, it's useful to have a, have a niche. I, I mean, I, I'm not the most well-known interviewer, most well-known podcaster in the world, but I am the most well-known mathematical podcaster. <laughs> Right, and there's probably not that many people with that combination of skills, right? Yeah, it, it's it's a much easier fight. I also think, you know, the other thing that happened is, of course, that as I grew older, you know, I became a teacher, and you sort of start to see, um, you know, the uh, communicating mathematical ideas as that becomes part of your profession, right? Because those of us who are in academia, we're researchers, but we're teachers too, almost all of us. And writing is, in a sense, another way to do that, a way where you know, I get less time with more people, right? When I have students in a class, of course, they're going to be with me for multiple hours a week, and they're going to be with my homework assignment for many more hours than they're going to be sitting there in the room with me. And they have to take a test. So I really have a lot of their attention at my command. When you're writing an article in the newspaper or a magazine, how long do you have? Maybe you have like 10 minutes of somebody's life, right? So it's a different kind of challenge saying, what can I do mathematically with the 10 minutes that this person is going to give me? And maybe not even their full attention, right? Maybe they're also looking at another window on their screen or pretending to listen to somebody else's conversation while they're looking at it. I mean, you, you don't know. On the other hand, you can reach thousands or tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of people at once instead of like the somewhere between 20 and 200 people who are sitting with me in a classroom. You, you mentioned uh, research in there, and you, and you are, of course, a researcher in uh, mathematics. And most of your research uh, seems to be around uh, number theory, algebraic geometry. Uh, it, so when, it, when I saw that you had a, uh, a presentation that you give uh, that talks about how you can count with topology, I, w I was a little bit surprised because uh, not necessarily a a subject that I think links in with uh, number theory as as much. So how did you end up doing research that kind of uh, tied together all of those things? Well, that's the thing about mathematics, that it is a very unified subject, and a lot of things that look different on the surface are tied together under the skin, and a lot of real advances have come with discovering those interfaces between different topics. So the relation of questions in number theory with geometric questions, uh, that's already somehow 
goes back in its modern form to the 60s with the work of Grotendieck, and conceptually it goes back even further than that. So it's part of like a long project involving many people to sort of understand what these geometric or topological features have to tell us about questions which come from seemingly a completely different world, the world of number theory. Um, but it's great, actually, the way it happened was that I was working with my collaborator, Akshay Venkatesh, at Stanford. We were quite stuck. And as it happened, we had a postdoc here at Wisconsin who came to work on algebraic topology, and the professor who was supposed to be his mentor got hired away and left right before he came. So here he was, a topologist, like all by himself, just at the moment when I needed expert assistance in topology. So he sort of joined us on this project, and then together uh, we were really able to make some progress. So it was an incredible piece of good luck for me. What was it about, say, number theory and algebraic geometry that uh, drew you into uh, kind of focus, at least primarily, on, on those for your research? Well, even to be quite honest, here's what happened. I started grad school in 1994. That was right at the moment when Wilde had announced his proof of Fermat, Everybody did number theory. Everybody, everybody who didn't already know what they were going to do did number theory because of what had happened with, with Wiles. I mean, that was the thing. It was a gold rush. Everybody wanted to be in on it. So, uh, I mean, it's now that that I I understand. I mean, timing is always such an important thing in in anyone's life. What has kept you doing it? Well, it's true that over the years I've like expanded out and I work on a lot of different stuff. And I mean, I do stuff that nowadays really doesn't have number theory number theoretic content at all, stuff that has more to do with representation theory or pure topology. I just wrote a computer science paper, something I never thought I would do, but I uh, went to a great talk by a guy called Quentin Berthe from Caltech, and we ended up talking about something off-fall and then wrote a paper about it. So I try not to be, like, strictly orthodox about it, but I think to some extent, you know, in mathematics, your training does leave a mark on you, right? So, I mean, if you grow up in number theory, really immersing yourself in that world, I do work in a lot of different areas, but in my mind, I think I'm always doing it as a number theorist, if that makes sense. Oh, that 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 does make sense. I mean, it's I I did the small amount of work in mathematics I've done uh, in graph theory, and so whenever I think of uh, mathematical problems, I, I try to somehow force them as much as I can into that frame because that's the the frame of reference that I do have. Right, and it's a, and it's a style. But I do think, you know, when I talk to students, I think sometimes students come, especially at the beginning of their studies, with the idea that, oh, I like this kind of math and I don't like that kind of math. I actually try to fight that in students. I think if you like math, you like math. And I think that when you sort of truly appreciate what's going on in a certain area, if you immersed yourself in it, you would find its charms and you would like come to really love it. I do think that's true. Then I, I have a I have a small challenge for you. Of, of the areas of mathematics that I have studied, the one that uh, always kind of left me wanting a little bit was uh, analysis. What what's uh, is there something that you could think of from analysis that that you think would would help me uh, kind of get over my reticence of it? I, all I can say is you got to read Terry Tao's blog. If you read his blog and you still can't feel the richness of analysis, then I feel like your heart is like a tiny shriveled piece of gravel. There's no other explanation. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I didn't, you know, I, didn't, I didn't grow up in analysis either. I mean, that's the, and to be honest, I think in the United States, it is not something that a lot of undergraduates are excited about. I think we're probably not teaching it right. I think there's a, there's a beautiful series of textbooks that Eli Stein at Princeton wrote in an attempt to correct this and sort of show some of the richness 
of the modern version of this subject. I hope they're adopted everywhere. I think it would be great. I think Terry is sort of an amazing ambassador for this subject. He certainly turned me on to a lot of things. You know, I've, been, I've worked with him to some extent, and I've sort of gotten into working on this whole class of problems called Kakea problems that I learned about from him, and that have sort of some very interesting mix of like ideas from analysis and ideas from number theory involved. But yeah, what can I tell you? That's my, that's my advice. <laughs> Terry can sell it better than I can sell it. Uh, so we've we've talked a bit about about your research here and and how like while it may have started a little bit more focused you have definitely uh, spread out a bit and that is definitely true about the book that you've written which I've mentioned a couple times how not to be wrong uh, which I recently had uh, the pleasure of of reading and one thing you can definitely say about that is that it does cover a a lot of a lot of ground uh, ideas wise you don't you don't focus in on on one single area so i was wondering where did you uh, find uh, find the ideas for the the mathematical stories that you talk about in your book well first of all i should say it's funny that you say it covers a lot of ground because it, it covers much less than it was supposed to cover actually I, I you know i submitted a proposal i was like here's the 18 chapters of this book and then at some point about a year in i wrote back to penguin and i was like well I've written three of the 18 chapters I said I was going to write, and I have 300 pages. So you are faced with a choice. Do you want an 1,800-page book? <laughs> or do you want me to like narrow my focus a little bit? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit happy that you ended up narrowing the focus, because otherwise our interview probably would, be a, probably would have happened a few months from now when I uh, had finished the book instead of today. They're very good salespeople at Penguin, but I think even they did not feel equal to the task of trying to market an 1,800-page book about math. So fortunately for them and me, we decided to uh, cut it down to my favorite five chapters, which became the five sections of the book, and have it be a more manageable size. Um, and if you, if you ask where did they come from, I mean, in some sense, I would say when I wrote the proposal, I just did a sort of core dump of all the stuff. You know, I've been, I've been writing journalism for, gosh, like probably almost 15 years now. And when you do that, you know, you're pitching stories or people are pitching ideas to you and you're writing the piece, there's things that you can do in 800, 1,000, 1,200 words and you can do really well, really nice, discreet, small ideas that you can explain. But you're constantly encountering things where you're like, ooh, I want to say something about this, but I can't do it in this format. I can't do it in an 800-word Slate article or an 800-word New York Times article. Right? It needs to stretch out. It needs to make those connections with other things. So over the years, you develop a reservoir of stuff like that that are not going to work unless you can do it in a longer format. So that's where all that stuff really came from. And then, of course, once you start writing, you follow links where they go, and then you find other stuff. I mean, the whole section in the middle about the Massachusetts lottery was not something I'd planned to do. So somehow I like came across that story and then you sort of dig and you dig and you become kind of obsessed. And that ended up being like a hundred pages of the book, like everything that came out of like just finding out about this crazy story. Uh, a, a story that I absolutely love. I, I watched you uh, a couple months ago, give a presentation about it. And so if I'm not, I don't want to actually spoil it for any of the listeners because you should just go out and pick out, pick up the book tomorrow so that you can read about the Massachusetts lottery. Cause it is fascinating. But uh, there's there's one idea from the book I, I was hoping to ask you about, uh, and it has to do with, with slime molds specifically. How what is it about slime molds that can help me to date better? <laughs> well, I've never seen you date, Samuel, so I don't know your specific <laughs> issues that you're having. But I mean, what I when I read about slime molds, I was at, that actually that section, interestingly enough, was the very first part I wrote. It was the part that was in the proposal. You know, you're when you 
pitch a book, you like you're supposed to write one chapter out in full to give the editors some idea of like what it is that they're getting. And that was the chapter I wrote. So it's the very first, the very oldest part of the book. And it was about a very cool study that I found out about where slime molds are these very primitive organisms without brains. And yet they actually like make decisions pretty well. And in a way they make decisions that look a lot like the kind of decisions that people made. So they're very interesting to sort of cognitive scientists and biologists as a kind of model for like, what the early history of cognition might have looked like. And so what I write about in the book is the way that slime molds somehow navigate trade-offs and biologists think that somehow different parts of the slime mold, different parts of this kind of component organism are essentially voting on what to do. And the slime mold as a unit kind of aggregates those into some kind of overall decision. I write about what that has in common with the way that political entities make decisions, which of course a country or a city or a state is, of course, also composed of a lot of individual organisms, as we like to call voters in political science, which have to somehow navigate trade-offs and collectively make some kind of decision, even though the different components might have different ideas about what is right. And so formally, in some sense, what is math good for? Well, a lot of things, but one thing it's good for is finding and describing and articulating those formal similarities between situations that are quite different on the surface. As for your romantic life, um, the reason I wrote about that is this sort of famous phenomenon where you can kind of um, manipulate a slime mold or an electorate into making a certain choice by placing the choice next to uh, another option, which is much like that, but slightly worse. So I write in the book about how sort of that this is sort of uh, – they've done experiments with human college students where on online dating sites they sort of like – put fake profiles of people who are like slightly less attractive and it makes the people who are already there more attractive uh, to the, to the daters. Uh, and, and so the, uh, the best way is, so if I was, if I was going, going after, going after a girl, girl and it was between me and say another person who is not like me, my best bet would be to bring in someone else who is kind of like me, but slightly less so that I appear better. Exactly. And that's going to give you the advantage over the other person, even though if it was just the two of you, the other person might have come out ahead. It works <laughs> on fly molds anyway. That you can see in the lab. <laughs> well, uh, good, good thing that the, uh, that the people I'm going after are primarily slime molds. <laughs> so... You know, you're a professor, you, you write, uh, I've also mentioned having seen you give a lecture, uh, so you, and that's something you do, you, you travel to, to give lectures. So for you, uh, as, I mean, and you're, I mean, you research, you teach, you do all these things. For you, what's a, a typical day of work? It's, it's complicated and it varies a lot depending on whether I'm on the road or like here in Madison. A lot of it is spent in front of my laptop, which is kind of like my entire life is like, in there. We can talk about today and like the morning I'm sort of, you know, I'm running admissions to our PhD program here and we're a week away from the deadline for people to give their answers. So I'm sort of doing a lot of last minute decision making about the waitlist, sort of shooting emails back and forth um, to various people trying to work that out. I mean, I'm sorry if that sounds boring and administrative, but it is like part of the academic life, like figuring out about training the next generation of mathematicians. Um, and then at the same sort of in parallel, I'm sort of like going over final drafts of a paper. I'm finishing actually a paper related to the topology project we talked about with my collaborators, uh, Akshay Venkatesh um, and Craig Westall, and the topologists. So we were, um, were some sort, of, sort of going over some very, very final revisions to that paper. Uh, you know, then I'll go to another building and go see 
a lecture and actually right after we talk, um, I have some grad students coming in who are sort of like reading uh, on an advanced topic that we don't offer a graduate course in, but they wanted to learn about it. So they've been reading over the weekend. They're going to come in and meet with me and we're going to talk about it. So it's very, you know, the academic life is like a very catch as catch can kind of day. There's like a lot of like different kind of stuff and different kind of activity that you sort of somehow manage to sort of, you know, pack into those daylight hours. Uh, those collaborators on the topology paper, I'm assuming, probably are not at the University of Wisconsin, correct? No, those two guys are not. So Akshay is in Stanford and Craig is at the University of Minnesota. So what is, what's, what's y'all's method then for uh, collaborating on uh, research? Um, it, it totally varies. Like some people, um, and it also varies with the stage of the project. I think when you're trying to work things out, it is actually really helpful to kind of see people's faces. And so we do a lot of Google Hangout, which is, it's better than Skype for more than two people. So I think when you're doing multi-person collaborations, that tends to work well. Beyond, when, when you're not quite at that stage, when you're in the writing stage, it's probably more like, you know, we have a shared Dropbox file and we send, send each other email a lot. That's sort of how the workflow works. But we haven't, you know, it's all over the place. There are papers I've written with collaborators where like literally there was like no face-to-face -face meeting for the entire course of the project from start to finish. There's others where somehow there was like a face-to-face -face meeting at the very beginning where some of the ideas were hatched and then all the writing of the paper was done separately. There's some where somehow no progress gets made except for those moments when you're like in the same room together actually working on it. I think a lot just depends on the temperament of the people involved. I, I would certainly say that in math we have not found a substitute for being in the same room. The tools substitute for some of that but, um, but there's a reason we still like get on planes and go to meetings. Yeah, and it's uh, not not just to uh, you know eat the wonderful food in San Antonio. Exactly. Uh, so a week from this uh, Saturday, there is a new event uh, happening out in Washington D.C. Uh, called the National Math Festival, and uh, you, I believe, are going to be giving a talk, correct? So yes, April 18th, this thing is going to be great. We've never done it before. Um, MSRI, the Math Sciences Research Institute, and the IAS, the Institute for Advanced Studies, are among the sponsors of the thing. It's like a large-scale event. We're going big with it. Um, I'm going to be talking. Steve Strogatz is going to be talking. Matt Calla is going to be talking about some of his amazing geometry stuff, and there's going to be like a giant midway. I mean, it's really, uh, no, nothing like this has ever really been done before, so I'm super excited to see how it, to see how it is so what what is it about giving talks and and as i mentioned i had seen you before you do seem to quite enjoy what is it uh, about uh, giving talks that seem seems to uh, be something that you do enjoy to do you know what i like about it the q a my favorite part i've heard my talk before after all i know what's going to happen during that part but the q a is so spectacularly interesting you know you learn about what does math look like not inside the walls of the academy, but like to the public. And that's what we need to engage with, right? I mean, you asked at the beginning, how do we change public views of mathematics? We can't do that unless we know what public views of mathematics are, unless we know like what the general citizen hears when we talk about math. And that's what I learned from doing the Q&A. It's just, it just gone in every place I do it. It's like completely different and it goes in some weird direction and it's awesome. Oh, what's one of the more uh, interesting questions that you've that you've got from a public lecture? You know, I remember once I was giving a talk and somebody asked about how mathematics had affected my religious beliefs. Much more personal question than I usually get. And I was like, ooh, now, now this is an interesting question. Like, what do you say? You don't know who's in the audience. You don't know, like, how they're... Um, 
how they're going to respond. But I, you know, I, there, but there is a lot about religion in the book in the sense that one of the questions that people have returned to over the years, of course, is questions about the origin of the universe, the existence of a deity, et cetera. And, you know, people use all the mental tools they have at hand. And one of those tools is math. So there's a tradition of people sort of trying to make mathematical arguments about this question, which I address in the book. Hey, well, Jordan Ellenberg, thank you so much for coming on to Strongly Connect Components and talking to me today. Oh, thanks for having me. It was great. And that is all the time that we have for this episode of Strongly Connected Components. If you want to find out more about Jordan Ellenberg, or just more about Strongly Connected Components in general, head on over to acmescience.com and look at the blog post for this episode and for all of the other 55 episodes that exist in the world of Strongly Connected Components. If you have any feedback, you want to suggest a guest, or perhaps you want a pitch, a podcast that you host and produce yourself, uh, which really we're looking for over at Acme Science right now. So if you have an idea, really, contact me. Uh, the contact information is samuel at acmescience.com. That's also my personal email address, which I'm giving to all of you. So if you also just want to like say, hey, uh, feel free. I'm fine. I check it constantly, all the time. Very easy to get a hold of me there. This podcast is a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike licensed podcast. So please feel free to take all of my words remix them to make me say whatever you want me to be saying at any given time as long as you give credit to acme science samuel hansen strongly connect components all that good stuff and then license it so that other people can remix it too the music that i'm talking over right now is the ants go jumping by science ctn and the music that i talked over at the very beginning of this podcast was the song pie by hard and firm off their album horses and grasses uh you can find them by just you know searching hard and firm on you know google science et and you can find over at soundcloud and well that's really pretty much it for this outro i usually try to go on a little bit longer i like to ramble i like the idea that maybe one of you is still listening as a matter of fact if there is one of you still listening right now send me an email samuel at acmescience.com with the Subject line, I'm still listening, and I will send you a math book. If there is more than one person, I'll randomly pick one person and then send you a math book. Awesome, right? So thank you all for listening, and I hope that you have a math week. Bye, y'all.